This is Art Unbound, a joint production of Portland Art Museum and The Numbers FM. I'm Intisar Bioto, the guest curator for the exhibition Black Artists of Oregon on view September the 9th, 2023 through March 17, 2024. As an artist, my work has been grounded in research on the presence and persistence of Black artists in our region, and this podcast series focuses on these intergenerational voices. In this episode, you'll hear from Rupert Kennard and Melanie Stevens, two different generations of artists inspired by comics and illustration who have used their mediums to tell stories of Black queer identities and expansive gender representation. My name is Intasar Bioto. I'm here with some special guests today. Would you all introduce yourselves? Um, yes, hello. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, I am Melanie Stevens. I am an illustrator, a graphic novelist, um, a printmaker, um, and an educator. Yes, I'm Rupert Kennard, and I want to thank you for inviting me to be here. I consider myself a political cartoonist. Um, graphic designer, activist. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, DJ Ambush, I'm the executive director of The Numbers 96.7 FM. As a part of this podcast so far, I've just been the engineer and editor. I am participating today as a comic book collector and action figure collector, just overall nerd. So happy to be here. So happy to have you here with us in excitement. Um, yeah, well, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm so excited about all of the people here today, and um, I'm especially excited about this conversation um, with Rupert Keenard and with, and with Melanie Stevens. Um, I've admired you both for years, and I think what's so amazing about being an artist in community is that over time you get to sense like little sparks alignments and people you feel it will be delicious that they meet. And so I think this is wonderful. And I sense um, little alignments between your work. I think you are both so witty and funny, but sharp and your work is sensitive and beautiful. And I, I has felt it would be great to have a conversation with you both. I know you're both in the exhibition, but I'm curious about um, your origins. You know, uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Um, where were your folks from? You know, that kind of story. Um, maybe asking you first that, Rupert. Um, there's something really interesting about um, telling um my, my story or sharing my journey when you include uh, where my parents were from because it's one of the things that gives me such a connection to um, history because my parents grew up in Mississippi and they were part of the African-American migration to the bigger cities up north. So my parents were born in Mississippi and ended up moving to Chicago in 1953, I want to say, and um, so I was I was born in 1954. Um, I had a I have an older sister who was born in Mississippi. I was born in Chicago, and then the next uh, 
three of my siblings were born in Chicago. Um, so my parents um, and most of my family are from St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. Um, my parents moved to the States, um, specifically Miami, to go to school. Um, and um, at around nine, um, my mother moved us to Atlanta, Georgia, which is, well, specifically Decatur, Georgia, um, which is where I grew up and I spent my formative years. So. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, coming from, well, actually, I want to ask you too, where, <laughs> what about you, Ambush? Um, as far as how did I get here? Yeah, uh, like where are you coming from? Uh, okay. and, you know. My parents are also immigrants. Um, my father's Nigerian. My mother's Jamaican. Um, I uh, was born in D.C., but raised right outside of Philadelphia, East Coast kid. Um, and as far as like as part of this discussion, uh, been involved with comics and um, action figures since I was really, really little. And then there was that pause of, you know, real life being an adult, but you have to put away childish things. Um, I was fortunate uh, to be able to still, you know, be active as a creator. Um, I've been, this year marks 30 years of DJing for me as a career. <clears throat> and I've been fortunate enough to be able to pick up those childish things because so I, I can afford them. So I spent a lot of time going back now and collecting and purchasing things that I wish I had when I was younger. And, um, yeah, that's, that's that's pretty much where I am with regards to this particular topic. Like, yeah, it, it, I'm very fortunate. <laughs> wow, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. That offers a shape to a question I want to <laughs> ask. Um, yeah, well, you know, coming from where you're speaking about um, seemingly childish things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like you all who are doing, you know, um, this – kind of medium of graphic novels and cartoons and, and different things like what were, how did, how did you enter that space? You know, what was there a spark? Was it a, a, a slow incline? Like how did you come to this space of illustration or cartooning or, or um, yes, that, that kind of world? Well, when I was a kid, I don't really know how old I must've been, maybe around eight I just started reading comic books. I discovered comic books. And um, it really just kind of fed, I think, an imagination I already had. And then to discover superheroes and the fact that they had their strengths, they had their weaknesses, they had their origin stories, they had their way of living life was really fascinating to me. So it was a great novelty in different notebooks uh, recreating those characters, drawing Superman, drawing Batman, drawing Spider-Man. And at one point in my neighborhood, um, I got a lot of attention from the other kids. I mean, I don't think anything was music, more music to my ears than kids going, oh, you need to see some of Rupert's drawings. He, he, he can draw really well. And so that was really good. But I think at the time I was more um, moved by the fact that adults recognized my work. It, it, the, the fact that the kids did, my peers did, didn't excite me as much as the fact that adults would say, how did you draw that? 
So I continued to draw these um, superheroes that were pretty known in the mainstream. And at one point, I started creating my own superheroes based on, you know, well, a, a way to tap into my own imagination. And so I would, I just created all these really goofy kind of white superheroes, and it was just fun. By that time, by a certain point, um, I started buying sketchbooks and really filling those up fairly quickly. And so I think it probably in the mid-60s, um, I just started becoming more aware of um, Muhammad Ali as a media figure. I didn't have anything in common with him, especially in terms of sports. Uh, I wasn't into boxing at all, but he lit a spark in me because he he was so forthcoming in talking about the way people of color were treated in this culture, and he made a powerful impact on me. And around that time, a little later on, I started coming to grips with um, being gay, even though at that time I don't think I had that word for it. I never had any struggle uh, with uh, accepting that part of me, just not alone, you know, difficult history with it. It was very smooth for me. Uh, And so between the fact that I was African-American and I was gay, I, I became aware of James Baldwin. And he was someone else that I was really uh, taken by. In terms of his brashness and his um, um, no bars hold, it was within that context that I started looking at the comic characters I had created. And I thought, how the hell am I creating white characters when that's all that really seems to exist right now and it's not reflecting me, it's not reflecting my community. So um, I went at it uh, in, in a, a very revolutionary way for me, uh, kind of in keeping with the times uh, where the Black Panthers were you know, in the media a lot. And I created this superhero called Superbad. And he had this giant afro and had this uh, outfit that... Um, was a combination of black liberation uh, colors. And the creation of uh, uh, Superbad uh, just fueled me into in my sketchbooks, drawing all these little adventures and things with them. And it was really, you know, even before I ever came up with my comic strip, Cathartic Comics, uh, just creating that character, um, uh, Superbad, was very cathartic for me. So eventually, I got. I became older and uh, ended up going to college. Uh, two years after I graduated from high school, I lived on my own for two years and then was able to go to college. And I felt like I just started mellowing out more because I really was very aware of how extreme um, I felt my perceptions of the world were. I, they were justified, and you know they weren't you know, wrong, but I just wanted, I, I did, just didn't want to embody that anger. I felt like it was a period of time that I could go through it and it was represented in my art and I just was able to move forward. And 
I ended up coming across uh, some information in, in the uh, life story of um, Joe Lewis, which oddly enough is another boxer. And the thing that fascinated me about Joe Lewis was that he, what he represented for black people and how um, he was just such a symbol for um, black people to rally around. And his nickname was the Brown Bomber. And so I felt like I wanted to pay homage to him. So that's when I ended up uh, creating the comic character. And I was very much affected by the film footage I would see of Joe Lewis because he was a fairly meek uh, guy, which was weird because it was in contrast of what I really appreciated about Muhammad Ali and James Baldwin. But I just ended up um, wanting the Brown Bomber to be a character that was more mild-mannered and and, and um, not as revolutionary, but whimsical, I think. I ended up wanting to incorporate more whimsy within my drawings. And it wasn't until I was invited to do an editorial cartoon strip for the Cornell student newspaper, the weekly paper, that the uh, Brown Bomber... I ended up wanting to include the Brown Bomber as part of that strip. And that was the beginning of uh, my, that was the beginning of being published, first of all. And then um, I was very, very committed to um, making sure that the comic strip had some kind of social commentary to it. Wow. Yes. Thank you. Again, always. (laughs) Um, Okay, Josh, I have questions from that, but I'm going to, Swerve over to you, and then we'll we'll merge the things. Um, yeah. So, could you answer that same question about <laughs> origin stories? Yeah, that's. We'll, a, we'll come back. That's a hard act to follow. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, like, the question again is about like the journey towards comics, or yeah. So, how you know, I asked about a little bit about where you came from, your yeah. folks and stuff, but. How? What was your spark? Whether it was a spark or an incline of you understanding that, um, you know, working in graphic novels or illustration or that kind of drafts person, yeah, person was a thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I will say that I don't, I don't remember when I first drawing. It's, I only remember drawing. <laughs> Which, so I don't know the origin for that. I've always been drawing. I've always had like a pencil in my hand. Um, but I never, I've always kind of lightly consumed comics because I was a nerd and I hung out with other nerds. So, you know, you're always bumping against that culture. <laughs> um, and I've always had a deep appreciation for the power of comics, but it always, I always felt like an outsider. Like it felt like this sort of, Um, mysterious medium and I didn't know how to get into that I never it never occurred to me that it was something I could I could actually create Um, that sort of changed in 20 I want to say 2009 or 2010 um, when I joined this meetup group um, for graphic novelists um, out of a curiosity and you know I ended up you know meeting with this group like every weekend for like I want to say like five to seven years and we would just share information on how to make comics 
the entire process. We critiqued each other. Um, and one of the main reasons why I became so interested in comics is um, as like a traditional painter, um, I was frustrated with like the cost of materials, the accessibility, um, um, this sort of general frustration with like, you know, being kind of like locked out of that field because of my lack of experience or um, like, I guess, degrees or whatever. So to me, comics was like this kind of magical, amazing thing where I could like immediately create these stories and like post them like on the web um, because like at that time web comics were like really picking up and like you know people you know who we would never know like across the world were like making comics and posting them up on the inter- internet and like you know it was it was kind of world expanding to me um, and another amazing thing about comics is like the immediacy like I could like something could happen um, in the news or like like current events or whatever and I, I would take like a day and create something and then i could comment on it immediately um and like around 2012 that's when a lot of things were happening and like the tone of my comics was starting to change because it was sort of kind of an autobiographical webcomic called black picket fences and it started as kind of this funny way to make fun of myself and like the ridiculous things that happened in my life and also you know this frustration with not seeing any comics with black women in them especially black women who look like me so, like, it started that way, but then the tone started to change and get more serious, um, you know, with, um, you know, a lot of the police brutality happening, the Sandy Hook shooting, like, those things started to leak into my comics, um, and for me, comics felt like the wild, wild west, like, I could do whatever I want, and no one could say anything. And I didn't feel that sort of freedom freedom with any other artistic medium. So, and I've been hooked ever since. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's so inspiring. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Synthesis time. (laughs) And like how, what y'all both said, there are so many things there. Um, And also feel free to jump in at any point ambush if you have questions. Also, if y'all have questions of one another, you know, I'm just guiding a process. There was something that uh, you all both said about, like, and also, too, Ambush, you kind of mentioned in another way, like, who you saw as these characters. You know, who you felt, uh, you know, a progression of being able to speak about identity and your own identity, you know, and and the identity of folks, you know, in your community there. Um could you speak a little bit more about that, whether that's technically or thematically? Um, you, yes, in any way. I think in the beginning when I started drawing uh, the Brown Bomber in my sketchbooks, um, I, I didn't see any place for him to go. It was purely for my, my entertainment It really was being invited to draw a cartoon for my school newspaper that made me even think uh, beyond the pages of my sketchbook. And I do find it fascinating that um, we 
both got to a point where um, the outside world started encroaching on our work and that it's almost like a, 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 a moment of revelation when you realize that you can use your comic strip uh, as a way of just commenting. One of the things that I've been able to really examine more uh, since I'm no longer drawing the strip um, has to do with the approach to including how I'm feeling about what's going on in the world um, and, and putting that in the comic strip uh, and doing it through these different personas. Uh, because to kind of continue the story of Brown Bomber, um, once I graduated from college, it truly was like, oh, well, that was fun. I did the Brown Bomber. He was in this this uh, newspaper because they wanted it. And uh, there, there's a number of stories to tell about, you know, um, the Brown Bomber there. Uh, one of them is that... Um, the Brown Bomber strip really dealt with issues having to do with people of color, uh, people with disadvantages, marginalized people, and uh, uh, queer people. And so people, I mean, you, if you read the strip, you knew it was this liberal guy, you know, throwing out this stuff and uh, was standing up for the rights of everyone. But... It really wasn't until my senior year, like months, um, a, month, a couple of months maybe before I was to graduate, that I did this thing that just felt like I, I needed to do it. And so I did a series of strips. The first series, four panels, one week, had these four or three black panels and it, it had the word balloons where the brown bomber is contemplating um, wanting to reveal who he truly is. Uh, he, he was like a mascot um, image on campus uh, over like three years. Um, the Black Student Union had, um, we created brown bomber t-shirts as a way to uh, fundraise for Martin Luther King Scholarship Fund. And so that was a big delight for me because we had 300 T-shirts printed and all of those shirts were sold. And so at the end of my, my school career, I decided to do a comic strip that had the Brown Bomber coming out of the closet. And um, it, that was one of the ways m my life intertwined with the, with the, the comic strip. Um, and so then years later, when I, well, when I ended up moving to Portland, there was a gay newspaper that was, uh, I was doing some graphics work for, and he found out that I'd done a comic strip. He said, well, why don't you do one for our paper? And I thought, oh, let's bring the bomber back out. So it was really cool that that was a continuation of that strip. And, and eventually I ended up going to another uh, LGBTQ uh, newspaper, and they were really committed to diversity of the queer community. And so I thought, I don't want to do a, a cartoon strip then with the Brown Bomber as the only character. 
So I thought it would really be cool if he had like a soulmate, someone who was like, you know, his best friend. And so I, that's when I came up with Diva Touche Flambe. And I came up with the name first because I really love the creativity of drag queen names. And I thought that would make a great drag queen name. So really, in essence, with, which, with the development of Diva, there was like this yin, yin, yin and yang aspect to those, those characters um, because the Brown Bomber was continued to be kind of innocent and naive about the world. And it was thrilling for me to create a counterpart. And Diva was created to, as a um, honoring the women in my life and the wisdom. So to just push that idea to the extent that I did, nothing phased Diva because she knew human nature. So she just had this wisdom. But I think she would get excited not excited. She would never show excitement, but she could appreciate the Brown Bomber's innocence. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it took a while for me to get to a point where I, I certainly was not forced, but started realizing what had been put into these characters. Uh, what they started to mean to me. And later on, I started introducing other characters, uh, this uh, heterosexual, uh, religious, uh, conservative couple became a part of the strip. And then that was this whole other area that opened up because then the Brown Bomber and Diva could play off those. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 as I say, it's, it's just been a really... It's been really interesting just getting to a point where I, I have more of an overview of what was accomplished in this trip that I wasn't aware was happening as I was doing it. Wow. I have um, several thoughts, but could you tell us who is a diva? Um, there, in the strip, she's his best friend. Um, she hosts... A Dish the Dirt with Diva show. Uh, she's an educator of young people. So she brings out, there's all of these strips where she's bringing out these um, parts of these young people that I don't think, they're kind of an exaggeration of, of the, the imagination of young people. Mm-hmm. But there were so many strips that that shows you the results of Diva as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also considered a reincarnated lesbian from centuries ago. You know, it's like every couple of hundred years, uh, Diva appears in some new for, uh, persona. And so this is like the last coming of Diva uh, as, you know, she's with her buddy, the Brown Bomber. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was um, at at your house one time, you showed me this image of Diva um, as the Portlandia statue. <laughs> and could you tell me about that? Like, you know, uh, well, when did Diva merge? Uh, like, what year? And was it here? Like, could you tell me about that piece? Uh, it was here in Portland. It was, um, I was part of the, the startup of the newspaper Just Out. And after a, about a year or so, they wanted 
me to draw the Brown Bomber for them. And that's when I decided, well, he should have this partner. Um, and yeah, that's where it happened. And that's when the strip beca- officially became cathartic comics. Got you, got you. And was just out based here in Portland? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it ended up being the biggest, uh, most um, uh, notable uh, uh, gay newspaper here in Portland. Uh, it was really before a, a bit before its time because the publisher, uh, Renee LaChance and uh, Jay Brown, uh, it was rare in the 80s that um, it, when you thought of gay culture, it was presented in a very diverse way. And uh, because of an experience, some experiences they had with a queer paper they had worked for before, they left that paper and decided to create Just Out. And as an art director, and I knew them, they came to me saying, would you want to work with us and come up with the initial design of the paper? And I said, uh, yeah. And I, I didn't believe they would really succeed because the other paper was like the big kid on the block. But um, they were very revolutionary in, in um, wanting to explore every aspect of, of that community. And, um, you know, once again, that informed so much of what was going on in my comic strip. Thank you. Um, I have a, another question, but I want to shift to you regarding the question of identity and, like, in any way. Um, well, when I first started making comics, it was really just kind of, it was a catharsis for me. Um, just this kind of fun way of, you know, expressing myself in this, you know, at that time, brand new medium. Um, but as life started to encroach on me and like um, a lot of the problems that would come with living in the South around that time, um, started to sort of like um, kind of weigh heavily on me. It did what started as basically this kind of light avatar for myself became more and more of this sort of intentional sort of picking um, um, at the scabs of like, you know, American structural racism. Um, and to me, like doing it in a way that was almost kind of unnoticeable, um, but resonant, started to become this goal with the comic, um, the webcomic. Um, and it, it did change the tone. Like, it became sort of this um, critical kind of reckoning with, like, structural racism, um, the American um, psyche at that time in, like, like 2012, like, um, as well as, like, my own sort of internal um, issues with, like, traditional middle-class values and that sort of thing. So, I mean, to me, like, identity became this inherent part of the work um, that I, like, stopped trying to, like, I don't know. Like, in the beginning, I, like, I wanted to make make an effort to make it whimsical, and that became less of a concern for me. So, yeah. Um, you both mentioned whimsy in different ways at different times 
in your journey. And I'm interested, this thing that you said, um, it's like a little triangular thing that's happening here. You know, being able to note that, you know, that, that Rupert, you're a political cartoonist, that that was your, uh, that was what you were doing. And, and for you that, you know, um, your degree from Yale was in political science, you know, and there was something you said, Ambush, about being drawn to Mm -hmm. these characters and comics as a child Mm -hmm. and then feeling like you had to kind of move away from childish things. Absolutely. And then as an adult, you know, as you kind of moved into into an adult space, but then as an adult having to return, you know, recalling those elements in. And I think there's something, even what you said about how like comics was accessible you you know it was an entry point something you could do uh but i'm also interested and i know i'm kind of drawing several things together in this way that like cartoons and comics aren't taken seriously as a fine art you know and this thing between this this kind of medium where where people and are able to express their ideas how you all like incorporated your life experience into these characters experiences I guess my question is, what is my question? Like, can can you all talk a little bit about that, like, almost like weight, counterweight balance between this, like, kind of medium that can be thought of as childish of, yeah. uh, and the what you all are voicing through these mediums in any way? Well, my, my, my first thought is, even as I was doing my, my, my strip, uh, I was really aware of the thoughtfulness and the analysis that was happening in so many other mediums, in film, in books, in plays, in dance, in music. Um, there were all of these incredible, wonderful artists who would find ways to uh, share their passions for or against things. And... I would, being aware that I was trying to do that within my comic strip um, made me feel sometimes that the art form was marginalized. And it was really great to get to a point where I kind of thought, I want to um, actually be more vocal about, I want to be a part of all, all of that media that's trying to get people thinking and and um, analyze more of what's going on in, in this uh, country. And, you know, some of the things that would go on, um, I would just get very angry. And I'm grateful to have had almost like a barrier um, because there were uh, there were so many angry voices out there, so I would get angry and I go, okay, how can you deal with this in a more humorous, whimsical uh, manner? Um, because so much of it was absurd, so much of what, what was going on, um, you know, in the country uh, racially and. And that just reminds me of one of the things I think I did um, earlier simply by virtue of being an African-American gay 
uh, man who was feminist identified was to tie these things together. I was so aware I was in the gay community and there were all these white gay men saying, we need to get our rights. You know, we need to the right to love whoever we want. And then I go in a gay bar and hear racial slurs or hear them talk about mm-hmm. women. And then I look at these other gay comic strips and they're just kind of dealing with gay lifestyle, the way, you know, dating things. And I'm like going, there's a wasted opportunity here. You're simply, you know, um, sharing with people um, your day-to-day um, activities. And I, I, I thought, I, I, I really think because I had a number of uh, things you know, I was part of a number of marginalized communities that I thought, I want to bring it to these white gay men that they are as racist and as sexist as anyone. And so in a way, you would think, oh, my Lord, they would think this is a downer. We don't want to read this. But if you can find that that sarcasm or that, that, that witty uh, slant, that's one of, one of the things that can kind of get you through. Um, and that was another thing at the at, at a period. I'm wondering if you experienced this. There's this period where you realize that your view and your perspective is unique, because you start looking around. And I mean, I had to be shown that that was true because we're all about being artists. We we want to get our work out. We want to express ourselves. It's not like we, we sat down and tried to figure out exactly what we wanted to present. Um, so when there was an opportunity, um, there was a uh, gay almanac out and about, and they listed the uh, Brown Bomber and Diva as the oldest lesbian and gay African-American characters. Um, this is years after I started the strip, and I just realized, oh, this got this has got to be true. I've never come across, you know, uh, characters in, in in newspapers like that. So for me, the 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 drive was my drive for doing what I did was based on realizing to some extent that I had a u- unique perspective, and it, it took a while for me to even go through some of the earlier cartoons to realize, wow, you you were pretty consistent in trying to do that. Um, yeah, it was it it, it was a once again a revelation. You have any thoughts in that vein? No pressure, and I can you know. No, I mean I think about this a lot, um, <laughs> and I will preface this by saying that I think that in the past few years, and maybe with the help of Marvel, who knows? Um, <laughs> I see the way that comics art is entering like the academic canon um, in interesting ways, and I appreciate that. But like, I feel like. There's this way in which the the very thing that I love about comics is the thing that is used as leverage to undermine it um, because comics presents as, like like you said, simple, right, mm-hmm. and in the style. Um, but they're, they're actually, the, the re- there's a reason, there's a conceptual reason why they're simple. It's, it allows you to usher through very complex ideas. Um, you can get away with a lot more in a comic than you could do in, like, say, film, I think. Yep. Um, but I think because they present as simple, they've often been seen as simple. 
um, and haven't been respected. Like I remember when I was in grad school and I presented comics work um, in one of my critiques, the professor prefaced the critique by saying, why is this considered art? That had never happened during any other critique for any other student. Um, so I thought that was interesting and that was something I was like constantly sort of like bucking up against. Um, I don't find it particularly bothersome because I don't care, but um, it's, I think that it's interesting the way comics have been marginalized as an art form when it encompasses every part of the arts process. Um, I think in some ways more than others um, because like the process of making a comic is so tedious and it also includes writing. So like, which, you know, is a, is a whole other complicated thing, but writing in such a way where you have to simultaneously think of it visually while you're writing it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how it's starting to become like this thing that's looked at academically. Um, like I'm thinking like PSU has a MFA program on comics now. Um, so like, yeah. I, I just want to echo what you're saying because um, I think it's it, it started probably when we think about it, it started a little further um, away um, with Doonesbury. Um, I, I think it's still not as respected, but um, I had an issue when I first started my first cartoon in at Cornell. Um, knowing that I was going on the editorial page, the idea was that an editorial cartoon was one panel and a you know a descriptive line, and I thought that would be the easiest thing. Certainly in terms of art, you sit down, draw a square, you draw an image, and then you have your little catchphrase underneath. I tried that for something like maybe four or five issues. It wasn't it wasn't landing. I had to develop the four-panel um, format for myself because it took me four panels to do it. Mm -hmm. The artistry in those one panels and the image and then what you you have to say, the, the enormity of the complexity of what some of those cartoons are trying to say, and you can do it with an image and one thing, because it's really like the, the cartoonist is saying, I'm giving you all of this and it's up to you, you know, to understand that this this thing is very complex, but I'm presenting it to you in the simplest way for you to get it. And I think it's the power of that artistry that wins uh, cartoonist Pulitzer Prizes. There are a number of cartoonists that have won those prizes because, in fact, one is a friend, Matt Worker, someone I knew um, back in the day in, in Portland. And he's always done those one-panel political cartoons. Mm. And um, I just wonder a lot of times, how are they doing this? And it was just really interesting to reflect back on the fact that I tried to do it and I couldn't do it. I, I definitely would like to um, communicate gratitude for uh, your dedication to this art form. Um, as a consumer, coming from strictly from that, cause a consumer is someone who appreciated the art younger, uh, as a youth rather, um, 
again, it came from, it was part of just, you know, finding the things that gravitated towards me or that I gravitated towards that entertained me. And again, when you're talking about some of these superheroes, these are characters that I looked up to for years, decades, and never saw reflections of myself in that. So as I got older, there was always this uh, predisposition to white characters, period. And you couple that with, again, this is when you get older, you put away the childish things. So the combination of those two things, of me not seeing myself in the art, also me not seeing myself in the culture because I need to grow out of it, created this situation where as an adult it was like, okay, now I'm starting to see more black characters. Now I'm starting to see more black creators. And it allowed me to be comfortable being myself, appreciating that art as an adult. So that's that's like the other, you know, balance for me now. So it's like I'm doing a lot of research and I'm going back to see what did I miss over the years? What are some of these older characters that existed that I was completely unaware of? Like I just recently, I would say maybe um, within the last year, became aware of Milestone Comics and all the work that they've been doing all this time and how they recently, not so recently, but got picked up by DC and, and what that what that means. Uh, uh, Naomi, uh, what's his name? Walker, David Walker. And his comic and how that's completely blown up in Philadelphia and all these black comics that are really, really amazing that I did again, just really didn't find a place for early on. It just didn't make sense. There was something about it. I remember um, I have a podcast and I remember we were discussing it, um, Stephen King film, the uh, the new newest version of it. And uh, one of my co- podcast mates mentioned some of the racial commentary in it. <laughs> it's on record. You hear me saying this awful thing. I said, uh, you know, I don't need racial commentary in my social, in my science fiction all the time and in my horror. Like, when I want to watch something with racial commentary, I watch something with racial commentary. Sometimes I just want horror. Sometimes I just want science fiction because I wasn't used to seeing us portrayed in those ways. And then you get something like um, Lovecraft Country. And it's like, whoa, wow, okay, it all makes sense. So um, anyone, you know, growing up now, like you said, with Marvel Comics and the representation is something they're really taking seriously, if only for monetary reasons, I'm fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine with that. Um, But I think uh, the younger generation is now really, really, stand to benefit from the work that you guys are doing and always have been. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I want to kind of shift to um, both of you mentioned publishing and how that entered your, your world, you know, with the editorial comic at Cornell and then with your online, uh, with your web comic and I know you both have published books. And I'm interested in, um, well, could you tell me a little bit about your books? And could you tell me what you want, what you dream of, and what you're working with for your books? And how, how the world at large can be your, you know, support y'all. And, you know, I just, like, I love books. I want to see these things in the world, you know. And whether that's something that's been published that, 
should uh, uh, be reprinted, be back in circulation. I'm just interested. So yes, what about what about publishing? What about books? You've been successful. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the web comics, um, and that like was great because it's easy um, and very very cheap. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I have been successful with self publishing, um, and by self publishing, I'm not. I don't mean I'm going in and like printing them myself. Like um, local Portland printers have printed my books and. Um, just a brief shout out to RAC, the Regional Arts and Culture Council, who have successfully funded, um, my books so far. Um, so I was able to pay people to print my books, um, which is nice. Um, but yeah, I like self-publishing for me, um, just because, you know, I have full, complete control on what is printed and, like, for the second book in particular, I like the idea that pretty much every part of the process involved was black people, from like the conception to the editing to the printing, like just all black people. And I'm kind of proud of, of that. Um, but um, yeah, self-publishing for me has been the way to go because um, traditional publishing is super gatekeepy. Um, with comics and you know I'm not like this big like um, you know superhero DC like um, illustrator or graphic novelist I'm just you know me so um, I've found success in like self-publishing so it's an overwhelming uh, subject for me because um I've just, well, we talked about it uh, a little bit before, and it has to do with those of of us who are really satisfied with our level of creativity. We know we 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 can create, we can put it out there, uh, we 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 can get it to the point of being published everything that we want to say, every image we want to have in it, we can do that. I have a passion for that. Um, I don't have a passion for trying to get people to to publish. Um, I I just keep longing for that person or group of people who have that passion, who will do it, because um, the first, well, the first book uh, that that is the first and only book that was published was B.B. and the Diva, and it's a collection of the comic strips. And that was published in 1992. And um, I sent a collection of the comics to a number of publishers, and all of them turned turned them down. Um, I probably, I want to say maybe 10 publishers. And the way the book ended up getting published is one of the publishers, um, Sasha Allison, was the uh, head of uh, Allison Publishing. And it was uh, 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 LGBT-based publishing company. And um, they were one of the companies I sent the book to. 
there was a, a first queer writers conference in San Francisco. And uh, Sasha Allison showed up as a part of that. And I was actually able to give him the book in his hands and say, please read this. And if you at all think it's something you'd, you'd be interested in, let me know. And um, he got back to me and said, yeah, I think there's something here I'm willing to publish. That You would have thought that would teach me a lesson because the book had been sent to his publishing house before. So someone saw it and probably thought, oh, I don't even need to pass this on to him. Um, so I would have thought I would have had a lesson of realizing that you have to get it to the right person. And that continues to be something I think is important. But then um, uh, I started working on something that was um, autobiographical because I was so blown away by the works of Alison Bechtel when she wrote Fun Home. And she's a friend of mine. And I was bl blown away by it. And I, w I had friends, I would encourage all of these friends to buy her book. And they said, why don't you do something like that? And I'm like, oh, my Lord, I don't have the patience or the, the, the drive to do that degree of a story. And, you know, I just couldn't do it. So I decided as a graphic designer also I wanted to create something that was autobiographical. And it, it was a combination of a graphic novel, graphic memoir, photo album, scrapbook, oral history. And the my main goal was to make sure every page was really lively with graphics and uh, ticket stubs from, you know, periods of life and movie posters. And, um, it, you know, I, I, I sent it to a couple of uh, literary agents and publishers, and they said, uh, two of them said, oh, this is like a graphic novel. We don't handle graphic novels. And then the other two said, this is not enough like a graphic novel. Why don't you make it a graphic? So I think I, I just ended up being paralyzed by uh, the rejection, what felt like rejection uh, to me. And it's, it's exciting, Melanie, to, talk, to hear your um, perspective because um, I, I continue to want to take things into my own hands, but things just keep seeming seeming to get in the way, and that's why I don't, I feel like I'm not, I haven't developed the drive to do the push that it takes. Sometimes I share, and then the next book has been, that I worked on, is a history of cathartic comics. And I get so much encouragement with that, but that's gone to a couple of people, a couple of publishers, and they haven't. In fact, there was a publisher who got in touch with me who knew something about it, and I sent them um, like the entire amount of work I had done on it, and they passed on it, and it was devastating. So I think that's just a part of, of each of us that has you know, different levels of tolerance for what feels like rejection. But I, I get excited when I share it with people and they, they go, wow, this is really great. And my excitement goes back up. But it's almost like all the wrong people are really enjoying it. And the people, 
I really wanted to get out there in people's hands because uh, I really feel like the history of, of that comic strip is really, there's a lot of lessons in it and a lot of um, um, ways to excite younger people to maybe, you know, um, follow a couple of those roads I, 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 mean, I think some of the things that we're doing in terms of our creativity when we share it with young people, um, it's important for them to get a sense of how wide open the lanes are. Because when we were coming up, <laughs> I mean, I have such a vivid image and memory of what that was like. You know, you, you, how... What an imagination you'd have to have to think that you could do what you're doing today, but today there there's certainly more you know images and more of a way that they can be exposed to all of those different ways. I have so many feelings from that. Uh, one, I remember I had a show over at Litman and White. I think that was like 2017. And at the reception, you came and you gave me a copy of uh, B.B. and the Diva. And I know that book is out of print, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was so special, you know, that you would give me, like, one of these, like, treasured things, you know. And just that, you know, circulation, what it means to have, like, a physical copy of something. And I still have that. And, you know, what am I saying here? It's that, like, these objects reaching many people's hands and you know my dream is for black artists and black arts elders like you to be reached out to for people you know we're in an era where we do have more access to seeing um folks of our identity through your efforts you know like through artists like you and it's very important that people with access, publishers, printers, people who are, I, I mean, I would love to see um, the Brown Bomber and Diva in motion. Like, that's my dream. Like, I feel like we need a documentary about you. We need, I want to see that because the the joy that we're having, like, like Ambush being able to return to this arena and see yourself it's truly through you. Like, you're an icon. Like, to me, you are truly an icon. And, you know, even, like, Diva being born here in Portland. Like, you know, you came here, I think you said, was it the late 70s or the early 80s? And that's iconic. That that piece is iconic to me. And I, um, my hope is that through this exhibition, you know, both you... And also, Melanie, you know, that your works reach broader circulation, that you're reached out to by publishers. Your works deserve to be published. Like, BB and the Diva deserves a reprint. Like, <laughs> all these things. That's that's my dream. I, I want this podcast and this exhibition to be a path, not like, it's not an endpoint. And, um... That's my dream, and I, I I hope we can keep talking about it in in the conversation. The folks who hear, like that's what that's what I want. I mean, you know, that's what I want. <laughs> well, I want you, I, I want you to know that one of the the dreams you mentioned did come true because 
it was yet another highlight of my life, which is another reason I want to get the history of cathartic comics out because in the, uh, I must have been in 1993, uh, I had moved back to Portland from the Bay Area and I got a call from a playwright, someone who was writing an original play and they wanted that play to be based on some of their favorite comic characters. And, you know, Doonesbury had a gay character. That was one of the people he, he wanted to feature in the play. And he was a fan of cathartic comics. And so he asked me if he could include my characters in the stage production that he was producing and writing. And sure enough, after a year or so, you know, he finished the play and it was premiering in San Francisco. And the play was called Out of the Inkwell. And it had a Brown Bomber and Diva segment. And uh, I'm sitting in the audience and I think there was two, uh, two other cartoonist segments came first. And then the third one came up. It's basically this older guy reminiscing over his love of comics. And then he says, oh, and I remember B.B. and the Diva. And then they come out on stage. <laughs> There's the Diva with her, her hairdo and this guy dressed in this little makeshift brown bomber uh, cartoon. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing I want to share with people, that being a part of that history. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. I have, gosh, I have one last question. Um, and if there's any other thoughts y'all have. But, you know, I'm also interested, you know, I know, you know, you like um, you coming from Atlanta and you coming from Chicago and coming here to Portland and just thinking about this place, you know, Portland and Oregon and um in this exhibition, I'm really thinking about the work of black artists, the invention of black artists who've been here in this space is often understanding about black life and creativity here is often siloed away from broader understandings of black American life, African diasporic life. And even, you know, I'm thinking about the connections like, you know, you being here, but then also you being in San Francisco, your time's there. And I know, you know, even when I... Uh, was able to see your book and get your book. I was just seeing how the introduction uh, was by Marlon Riggs, you know, and um, uh, yes, and just I'm interested how in this story that we're away, but we're connected to black mm. arts production, black theorists, black filmmakers. It's and that you've been here doing this work. It's so the exposition of that is so exciting. So I'm interested I guess my question or statement is how do you all feel about being here the time you've been here and what do you dream for black artists, black cartoonists um, here in this region, whether it's in any kind of space in the cartoon space, in the fine art space or the museum space that, that your work will be in, in this exhibition, just like any thoughts from that space. I know there's like a lot of whoop whoop. I'm like saying several things, <laughs> but there's something there. Well, um, because you you threw a lot, I I received a lot. Uh, the first thing I I I, I would want to say is that um, I I can't even tell you how overjoyed I am that if someone was thinking in terms of an exhibit representing uh, black art, African American art, 
that cartooning even came up because no matter what the advancement has been for the art form, it's still like a forgotten art. And I, I also remember very fondly, and it kind of gets me a little emotional, that there was a period um, in the late 80s or mid-80s to early 90s that it seemed like there was going to be, there was this little burp of a Harlem Renaissance kind of uh, thing happening where Audre Lorde, um, there was a, a, a troupe in San Francisco, Afro-Pomo Homos, um, um, Marlon Riggs, definitely, Essex Hill. There were like all of these creative people um, pulling together, and we knew one another. And it, it really felt so exciting because it really felt like a community and people were doing groundbreaking work to the extent that Marlon created uh, Tongues Untied and then that included the works of, of uh, Essex Hemp Hill and dance. And so that was a, when, when that came, <clears throat> I did a comic strip about it. I wanted, there was like this attempt to say, you know, we're here too. You know the the cartoonists. We want to be a part of that. So for some reason that 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 came up for me in terms of Portland. Um, I just want to make it clear that I I do feel largely responsible for not having more of a visibility, and I I do blame it on on the degree of drive I have, and I just. I am at the point where I just really want to acknowledge that I would like help and support in doing it because for whatever reason, I, I go to a certain point, I'm like, okay, they, I mean, especially when it comes to the history of your own artwork, it's kind of easy if you're not as well adjusted as you want to believe you are that um, – <clears throat> you believe in it enough that that would be enough to give you the strength to do all the pushing you need to do. But uh, for me, um, it's, it, that voice keeps saying, this is self-indulgent for you to want to get this work out. Um, you know, no one wants to read about, you know, your little adventures of starting a comic strip. Um, and, and, you know, that's a voice that I think works in, in the minds of a lot of people of color and a lot of people who aren't as represented in, in the media. Uh, it's it's kind of like it needs to be proven to you that you're really a, a, a valid entity to go out and, and, and promote your own work. It really is hard for me. And then Portland, at one point, is, along with Seattle, is like one of the little enclaves of comics publishing world. So somehow I thought that would be to my advantage, but nothing has worked. Well, you know, I how I think about it is, gosh, I think there's something to be said and done from us talking and coming together. You know, I'm learning to ask for help, you know, as an artist and someone who's like facilitating spaces, 
I know I can't do it alone. I can't succeed at this alone. And I'm having to evolve because I'm bound on success. And I'm bound on success with us, you know. And, you know, to be able to ask for help, like, I once again, that's another dream. Not just the books, but for you to have the help that you need, you know, for us all to have the help that we need. And, yeah. And, you know, also, too, we're also, you know, it's not just that, like, we – when you're not recognized, when you're not seen all the time, you're not expected to be there. You know, who would, based on the narrative of Oregon in this place, who would be like Rupert Keatard is here, you know, like doing this amazing thing. Like people are saying, well, I didn't know there were black people here. Well, then how would they even get to jump and to be looking to like, okay, where's the black artist, you know? So I think it's not just on you. You know, it's on other people's effort to do that work, to know that there's people here that they could not even have imagined, but they still need to do work to find them. So that's, the, I'm just, that's what I'm saying. Um, yeah, and, and you on on place and being here. Yes. Um, just to add on to what you said mm-hmm. about having to do work to find them, I mean, that's by design, right? Like, there's, there's a history of erasure here, Um that I think needs to be acknowledged. Um, and there, there are reasons why someone like me wouldn't have known about Rupert until you introduced us. Um, it makes me quite angry, actually, when I think about it. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of Portland, um, I would say that, like, I made a big leap eight years ago, eight years ago coming here from Atlanta um, to go to school. And it's paid off pretty well. Like, um, Portland has been extremely generous and kind to me as an artist, as a black artist. Um, The black artist community here is extremely rich and just beautiful and stunning and, like, have, like, helped me grow as a person, as an artist here. And I can't imagine any other place in this country have giving me what I've gotten from the experience of living here. Um, so I'm just extremely grateful for that. And it's also taught me or instilled in me a, like um, a spirit of giving back because I feel that I've taken so much um, because of the privilege I've been allotted. And being here, I do feel the need to give back in terms of like resources and accessibility to all of these art forms that I've been able to experience here so like there have been really great avenues in doing that um but also like it's a really it's been in a really amazing place um in terms of making my own pathway um because I think for a lot of the things that I want to do there there hasn't been like an easy way and I've had to find a way but I think Portland is a really fertile ground for that um because there's like a rich history of that here even like for artists like yourself, like, and what you've done, like, there's a history of people, like, making a way and figuring out how to, like, make things happen when there are no visible pathways, so. It really warms my heart to hear you say that the idea of coming here from Atlanta mm-hmm. and to be in a position to say that this has served you well, because it doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, you have to find your community. You have to, you know, you found a community of artists and 
and a general community that has really supported you. And I feel that way too, despite, you know, not really being able to go as far as I've wanted to. But um, I know of, of a number of African Americans who come here from uh, cities with larger African American populations, and they they get here, they can't get a foothold, and and for them, <clears throat> it looks it really bad. You know, they just, you know, I, I feel like every time the plane comes with someone who's moving here, <laughs> there should be a contingent of black people and black artists or people of color there to say, okay, we'll, you know, we'll do what we can to um, to really welcome you here because a lot of us are, you know, coming from areas that um, there's just this very secure African-American community. Uh, you, I mean, there's hardly any that are as, as you know, open as Atlanta and Chicago, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's not like you you moved here from Des Moines, Iowa. You know, you 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 you've been there where your community is, and you come here, and it's like oh. it makes a difference. So I'm I'm just glad it it's so good to hear that it's worked. I mean, I I lived here, <clears throat> moved here in '79, then moved to the Bay Area. Uh, because I wanted, you know, more diversity and better weather and more culture. Uh, but my heart was here, and I came back. So I truly love Portland. I don't recognize it as <laughs> the place I moved to at this point, but, but I, I, it, it's in my heart. <laughs> I echo the exact same sentiment, um, Melanie, seriously. Um there's just something that happened. I moved here in 2016 from, like, again, from Philadelphia. And there's a lot of black culture there. There just is. Um, but there is something about the artist community here. It's You described it really, really well. And I remember experiencing it specifically as a DJ. And I wasn't used to how welcoming uh, the DJ community was here. Just in sharing gigs and opportunities. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> and then to hear that you know you to hear that echo echoed in your experience like I absolutely love it here and when it comes to the black creative community I I could be wrong but outside looking in it felt like there was this overwhelming amount of passion to just exist in spaces and places that didn't commonly allow us to exist and that that overwhelming, overwhelming desire, it radiates to any of us that are outside of Portland that are not from Portland when we come here. It's like, it's interesting to hear people say there isn't a lot of black culture, there isn't a lot of black life. And then I get here and I'm surrounded by an abundance of it to such a potent degree. It's like, I don't know where you guys are hanging out, but <laughs> <laughs> absolutely love Portland. Not not to say that it, you know it doesn't have its issues. I feel like again, um, the black experience that I'm having is a direct result in contrast to those issues. Constantly fighting those issues for not just you know again um, the ability to just you know push back, but actual like cultural survival at every step. So it just seems that much more potent. And yeah, I, I've. I've talked to some of my East Coast friends and other people that have come here. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to be here for a couple of years. And 
Portland just isn't for me. I respond the exact same way every single time. I am here until it's time to move out of the country. I'm good. <laughs> I love it here. All right. Yeah. Wow. Dang. Thank you, Ambush. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's something. You can be lost here. But then when you find, a, you kind of get in a pocket based on who you, it may not be for everybody, but right. people do care <clears throat> about making spaces because we have to. And it takes a certain kind of passion that you're saying. It's like a radiance that people are just like, ooh, ooh, ooh we're doing this. And that can make it generous. Yeah. I'm really interested in generosity and amplifying our generosity among one another and there is gen- there is generosity here among the people who truly care about caring about black people and black spaces mm-hmm. that can move something even beyond what we know about right now. That's yep. what I'm hoping for. Yep. Well, um, I am just so glad for this moment. I think about these moments as sparks and seeds with many roots. I feel like when I first got to meet you, Melanie, uh, when you first came here, and then the amazing things you're doing with Nat Turner Project and is it the Drinking Gourd Fellowship mm-hmm. where, you know, you're providing resources for black uh, for black and, like, POC, indigenous artists and, and exhibition opportunities? Um, it's amazing. And your podcast, I, I want to get you on here as a, on a, as a podcast person with your where, um, with your, um, where are we going to be at? Who all gonna be there? Who, okay, I keep getting it. I keep getting it mixed up because I'm like, who all gonna be there, and where are we gonna be at? <laughs> so yes, I just admire you deeply, and I hope that people also take a look at at that work and at that body of interviews because it's powerful people in there. These same kind of stories, like that's a deep archive that you're creating, and we appreciate you. you and Max a lot. Um, and then yeah, just thank you, like. Thank you, Rupert. Like I said, you're an icon, and you're an icon here. You're an icon elsewhere, and it's it's time for people to uh, it's time for people to recognize. <laughs> well, it's just it continues to be weird as I get older. Um, I keep getting um, this acknowledgement. Um, I'm really, one of the last ones was I don't know if you guys know you've seen the mural. Yes. Yeah, uh, someone, a group decided to honor a group of uh, LGBTQ uh, figures. I want to say elders, but not everyone is old and not uh, everyone is from Portland. So it's a very odd (laughs) kind of mural, but they saw fit to put me on it. They called me up and said, we're doing this mural. Uh, Would you uh, agree to be a part of it? And I said, that's funny. Sure, do whatever you want. <laughs> and I'm, you know, and it's out of my mind. I don't, and then all of a sudden they called and said, we're going to do the ribbon cutting. This is like, you know, a couple of years later. And uh, it's, I think if anything is a testament to um, my loving Portland, it's my being able to go by that mural and just take a glance and see that, the city has thought enough of some aspect of my life to to, to highlight me in that way. It's, and it's, I'm up there with one of my best friends, Kathleen Sadat, who mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I understand why Kathleen is on it, but I'm, but yeah, yeah, it's it's 
it just continues to be humbling uh, to keep getting the uh, these um, bits of recognition. Where is that mural? It's um, Davis and Broadway. It's like the Embers, the old Embers nightclub. It's like right across the street from it. And even when they said they were going to do it and they would send samples of what they were working on for me to approve, I had no idea of the scope. Yeah, it's big. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. Well, it's an honor to each of you. Thank you, Ambush, for joining us today. I admire you so much. Thank you. Just, you know, thank you for... Your creativity and your technical prowess. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I, I, I really felt like it, it was just very unique to have your perspective as someone who consumes the art mm. form. Um, that's why I like these things, because I, I just feel these gatherings, there's so much to learn from um, one another. Mm. And... Um, I know there was something you said that I would have just kind of taken a leap from from it, but I can't think of what it was right now. <laughs> Thank you. The pleasure is absolutely mine, seriously. It had to do with superheroes and mm. um, the, the whole idea that this form, cartooning, mm-hmm. um, has been maligned in so many ways. I mean, when I was young, still living with my parents, Mm. the idea that my father didn't approve of my reading comic books because they're considered, you know, like a menace to society. (laughs) And at one point, I'm like thinking, I'm not just reading comic books, I'm reading Marvel. Right. You know, I'm reading kind of the, uh, you know. uh, Right. And one uh, night he got so angry with... um, me reading comic books, he boxed them up and, and, and put them out with the garbage for the garbage man to pick up. Oh, wow. And I had, this, be this was in the 70s. I, I, I had some vintage comics. Oh, that had to be devastating. It, it's, it's like one of the worst memories of my childhood to remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely um, contributed uh, a lot of like my early writing and creativity, especially like literally. I used to like write stories a lot when I was younger. Um, with my Jamaican side living in D.C. and us living in Pennsylvania, we'd go down and see my grandma a lot. So I'd be in the backseat of the car, just in the notebook, just writing stories. Wow. And um, I definitely attributed my vocabulary when I was younger to X-Men Comics, mm-hmm. Hank McCoy. I had to try to understand what these words meant, and I was Absolutely. learning the definitions of these words with these long expositions and these, and these like, oh, okay. I had to deduce the definition of, you know, where based on the way it was using that sentence and anything mutant related, Marvel related back then I was locked yeah. in 100%. So it, it was kind of weird to have people kind of downplay it as a medium and say, that's, you know, why does nothing to take serious? Just comics. I learned so much and then to be older and then, to understand what Stanley was doing with the uh, comparison between um, Professor X and um, Magneto, with that being uh, MLK and uh, Malcolm X, and just seeing some of the That's right. the larger ideas that they were putting forward even back then, it was like, man, wow, okay, no. <laughs> so many things on so many different levels. Well, that that can't help but 
reminds me as a youngster, the first time I was introduced to, it was like Fantastic Four, mm. uh, I want to say issue 57, and it was the introduction of the Black Panther. Right. And I have had enough social consciousness. I knew Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were these white Jewish men. Right. And I'm reading this introduction of the first black superhero I've ever seen in comics. I'm like, how are they doing this? There's, <laughs> no, there's nothing, nothing disrespectful. Right. They, they, they were able to come up with this concept that was, for me, beyond uh, criticism. Right. Because it was years later when they came up with Luke Cage and they tried to have him talk in a certain way. I'm like, wow, you you as much blew this as you got it with. with right, right. And to bring it all like full circle, right? So the Black Panther movie comes out. It does phenomenal, breaks records all over the place. And I remember being on Instagram and um, there's a DJ here. I'm not going to name who they are. Um, white DJ here. And uh, he said, you know, it's important that we remember that these characters were created by two white men. And I was like, in this moment, this is, <laughs> this is what, this is, wow, <laughs> unfollow. I'm not sure why we thought that was, <laughs> there was so much black joy in the moment. It was like, oh, all right, pipe down. Remember who delivered the black joy to you. But like, that, oh, okay. that <laughs> on to something you were saying, Melanie, about your joy in knowing the work you're doing, you can incorporate so many other people of color. Because I remember there was a period in the 70s when they were doing all these so-called black sportation movies, mm -hmm. and they'd have a black star, but everybody, certainly not the, the writer, wouldn't be black. Right. They'd have all of these people you know, doing this work, and so to get to a, I mean, that's to me what, what really made the Black Panther work. Yeah, you know, they they just came up with this whole aesthetic uh, to attach to, you know, what's Stanley and Jack Kirby. So they built on that in yeah. a way that the minute you would hear that Marvel and Hollywood was going to make a Black Panther movie, you're like, oh well, I I hope for the best. <laughs> Right. You know, and once again, it's almost something magical about that character. Yeah. That it was uh, created in such a noble way, and then the movie about him handled in such a noble way. Yeah, the, 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 the way they realized Wakanda raised the bar, period. Like, a, like, yeah, that's a real place. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like... They really raised the bar, so I'm excited to, to hear. Um, I'm excited to see what they're going to do with Blade next. Mm. Um, they've and it's interesting to watch what Kevin Feige is doing right now with different things they're testing in the comics that you know is going to start trickling into the real world um, with the you know the live actors. So they've introduced yeah. Blade's daughter now. Uh, they've introduced. They've brought back um, Isaiah. Uh, I can't remember his last name. Uh, the original Captain America. Uh, the black Captain America that was experimented on uh, before the they used the super serum, uh, super serum, super soldier serum on Steve Rogers. Of course, there was testing on black bodies before that. So that whole comic, I collected those. That was amazing. And they introduced that older character in the TV show for Falcon Winter Soldier. And then his grandson is now Young Avenger that they're going to bring in. So it's, again, even if it's only for monetary reasons. 
hey, <laughs> give, give me more of it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, gosh, this yeah. is an excitement. I'm excited at this excitement. Um, I love being with my comic nerds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're rattling off these names. And I know you're probably going, what? <laughs> I mean, you're right, but I'm excited at the excitement. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been a joy, and I, I look forward to continuing the joy outside of this space. Yeah. Thank you. Thank y'all. Thank each of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for pulling us together. Great experience. Thank you for listening to this Portland Art Museum podcast. My name is DJ Ambush, the producer of this podcast and the executive director at 96.7 FM, The Numbers, a community-based radio station here in Portland with the focus on representing black culture and music. The Numbers FM has been a community partner in residence at the Portland Art Museum since 2020. On the next episode, you'll hear from Damaliaya, an internationally known conceptual artist and performer who made Portland her home base in the early 2000s. Black Artists of Oregon is sponsored in part by a Museums for America grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services and grants from Meyer Memorial Trust and the Terra Foundation for American Art. For more information about this exhibition, visit us online at portlandartmuseum.org. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you know when that episode is released. We appreciate that you've chosen to listen to this podcast. We would also appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review this episode. That is if you're using Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thank you for listening.